Get up on your feet. Find somebody and tell them good morning. Before creation breathed its first breath, and all there was to be was not yet. You were seated there on your throne, high and glorious. God alone, you're the one I worship and adore. Every moment leaves me wanting more. In your presence I am overcome. I sing your praise at the top of my lungs.
Somebody wants to greet you this morning. Here we go, buddy. You ready? Good morning, Carpenter's Way. Give a hand. You know, that's very scary. Jonah, you did a great job. We've been working on that for what, three or four weeks? And he was like, no way. And then he sang up here and he's like, I kind of can do this. Get my mom off the stage. I... Jonah, you did so good. That is so scary. Gavin, you're up next. Where are you, buddy? Look at this. Gavin, come here. Yeah. I want everybody to see your Christmas gift. Can you do that? Or are you too shy? It's scary to come up here. You're going to be preaching up here one day, so come on. Oh. Look at this young man. Is this the most handsome guy you've ever seen in the world? Yeah. Look at and Gavin, that was your Christmas gift, right? You wanted a tuxedo, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes, sir. That a boy. <laughs> For those of you watching in Ohio, that's how southern boys talk. Yes, sir. <laughs> Very good. I wanted to... You want to say good morning now? Good morning, Carpenter's Way. All right. All right. Good job, buddy. Still a boy. All right. You pray for our little boys because our little girls are going to need godly men, right? And uh, we put uh, you through others, and many of you are involved. We put a lot of money in discipling young men and young women to be godly men and women, and we, we keep praying for, those, for these kids. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, in the past sometimes, as, as, as these kids grow, they go through stages, and, and we say, oh, if I was like that, or I was never like that, or my kids were never like that, yes, they were. 
And there were people looking at you, and so pray for those kids. And, uh, and they have life, and it's exciting. It's, uh, what, what personalities? Jonah, I'm proud of you for coming to me. He came to me this morning and said, is today the day? Today's the day, Jonah. <laughs> so anyway, thanks, guys. You did a great job. Uh, it, welcome. If you're visiting with us, if you're watching online, and this is your first time with Carpenter's Way, we're honored that you would be here this morning. And, and our hope and our prayer is that you would fall in love with Jesus having been with us. Now, we want you to like us. That's just normal, and we hope you enjoy your time and our worship and time in the Word. But our hope and our prayer is really that you meet Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Uh, your life may be careening out of control as you see it, but it is not careening out of control as He sees it. And you're going to see that this morning. Uh, we have started last week. Zach uh, began our series on who is this man. Uh, it is a look at the life of Jesus in chronological order from all four Gospels. This morning we're jumping into that story, and I, I just want to encourage you to think out of the box. Think about what we're reading, and, and uh, it is, and, and think, one of, the, one of the weaknesses with which we come to the Scriptures is we know often how the story ends because we've read it, but what you have to try to do and discipline yourself as we read through the stories uh, in coming months and years, <laughs> it's going to take 22 years to get done, but as we read through them, try to put yourself in the position of Joseph and what he knows, not what you know, but what Joseph did and did not know. It is no different than where you are right now. Uh, your life may be, you know, God has clearly told you how to live and, and his instructions in Scripture, but you have no idea what that looks like in real life, and neither did Joseph and Mary, but they decided to obey. Same with the Magi. So going to be a great morning in God's Word. I'm not going to preach my message before I preach the message, but we're going to have a good time. So thanks for being with us if you're visiting. And uh, for those of you who are not visiting, who have made this your home, thanks for being here again. It's good to see you in this new year, and hopefully you're settling in, and uh, um, uh, we're, we're honored that you're here. I do want to highlight some things, so take your worship guide. Let's, uh, let's point some things out. You're going to see an insert in there, ladies, about the If Gathering. This is a day conference. It is, uh, there's no cost, right, Julie? There is a cost. The information is in there, and you can talk to the ladies who are involved, or you can contact Julie, and we'll put you in touch with those who are leading this. But it is a phenomenal, I think, is Casey kind of the point person? Where is she? Is she in here? She's probably working in children's ministry. So you can contact the office, and we can put you in touch with the right people if you have questions. But ladies, this is a phenomenal conference. The speakers are great. And godly, biblical, so this is something worth, worth taking time and looking at, and that's why we're excited to promote it as well. So take some time and review that. Uh, other things coming up, women's Bible studies are beginning. Our men's Bible studies continues on Tuesday morning. I want to remind you that as the new year comes that this is good, but where the real uh, growth takes place is among relationships with each other, and those take place in small breakout Bible study groups. So if you are not in one and you have some questions, Come up after, and I'll, I'll tell you about what we have to offer. Or at the welcome table, we're glad to ask, answer questions. But we want to get you involved. We want you to build relationships with others. So please take note of that. All of that. Now, I want to I step, and I want to talk to it for a few moments uh, with our church family. Uh, oh, one more thing. Hot Hearts is coming up. That is our student camp, and it says here that there's only 10 spots left. So 6th through 12th graders, this is an excellent, excellent conference. Uh, take note of that. Okay, so uh, I want to kind of um, talk to our church family for a few moments um, about family business. Uh, we, As we wrapped up 2018 and we ended the year, I want to thank you for your faithful giving. Uh, uh, our above and beyond normal giving uh, allowed us to put just under $100,000 on our renovation fund. We're that much close to having new toilets. 
That was like half-hearted. Just so you know, if you're visiting, we have never, no church has ever been more excited about better bathrooms than this church. You're going to find out in about an hour when I'm done. Why? But uh, the, for those of you who, who do not know what we're talking about, we actually own this whole, this whole building. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, our student center is on the end, and then we do our church ministry in here. Well, we own the, the middle part, too. It used to be our student center, and it is uh, on, on the edge of being renovated, and we're going to turn that to uh, an adult discipleship wing, so there'll be lots of classes in there. And then we're going to turn a couple rooms over here into larger bathrooms so that we can shuffle 500 people through. I mean, it's, it's an inconvenience, and, and, we, and so we're excited about that. The whole cost of that uh, is, if you, if you look on the right side of your worship guide, it's the whole cost of that first phase, uh, the whole, and that's all of that. Phase two is something different, but it's 608000 and we are well over half of that right now. So... Thank you for giving, you guys. We just started this around March or April, I think, and, and uh, that's, that's a lot of giving, and we, we, really, we really appreciate your giving, your faithfulness. Um, having said that, as we start a new year, uh, it is our normal, regular giving uh, as part of this church that supports our missions, our church. Uh, we uh, presently give well over $100,000 a year towards mission giving, and uh, you make that possible by giving. We have, we have a smaller staff so that we can invest the money in discipling people and building, and you know all that stuff, and, and we started our new budget year January 1st, so I want to encourage you, uh, if you are part of Carpenter's Way, whether it's a dollar or or some of you can give more, just, just give. Uh, and that's part of our worship each week, and that allows us to do what we do. And uh, so, um, you know, it's ex- these are exciting days, and God willing, maybe this year we'll be able to actually uh, get new toilets. Yes, praise God for toilets. Pray for toilets. Uh, so anyway, um, as the world gets crazy, as the world gets crazier, it is going to be even more important that we take care of each other more. Emotionally, spiritually, even financially, that's what we do as the body of Christ. That's, what, that's why God invented the church. And I want to encourage you to be here. I want to encourage you to build relationships with others. I want to encourage you to be involved in ministry. I want to encourage you to spiritually pray for each other. I want you to, I want you to have the courage when you see somebody you haven't seen in a few weeks and you say, how are you doing? And they actually get honest and say, I'm struggling that instead of just going, well, I'll pray for you, take a second, put your hand on their shoulder, and pray a 20-second prayer. Prayers aren't more meaningful if they're 10 minutes long. Just say, God, just whatever Mark's going through, just pray. We just be with Mark. Just pray for each other. Look, we've, we all, those of us who have been saved a long time, we are really, most of us are really willing to say, I want to be a part of a church that dot, dot, dot. Prays for each other, supports each other, encourages each other. Let's be that church. Let's be that church. And the only way we become that church is when you decide to be that church, and uh, um, you know, in 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 all areas, uh, being vulnerable, praying for people who are vulnerable, not gossiping. Uh, Jonah is a perfect child, right? But when Jonah has his moments, instead of bad mouthing his mother, who's probably responsible for the whole thing, <laughs> we we pray for the children, we pray for the parents, that God will give them peace. That we come alongside and we offer to take them for a day. You, not me. I'm just you know I'm just graduating my kids out. So, but. But that is what the church looks like. That's what it looks like when people's marriages are struggling. We don't just talk about their marriages struggling. We pray for them. It's hard. It's, it takes work, but it takes all of us. So that's what we're doing in 2019. And uh, we're talking about God's Word. We're, we're, if you're visiting, is there any question what we're going to talk about this year? I mean, 
We're gonna, we, we need to put a second one twice as big on this side. That's what this is about. It's about Jesus and loving each other, for real. For the rest of our lives, that's all it's about. So I, I, just, I just wanted to throw that out there to you and remind you why we gather and ask you to, 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 to go, out of your, go out of your comfort zone and care for each other and uh, hug each other's neck and pray for each other. We need each other. And I, I got news for you. You can have a greater impact than Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi just by talking to somebody and looking in their eyes and praying for them. Don't let Fox News or CNN convince you that that's what life is about. It's not. Life is about having been purchased by Jesus, loving each other, and we'll get through anything. And I know this because I've been to India where it is, a, it is a Hindu nation that is against evangelicalism. And they are, they are doing just fine. They're poor, but they're doing just fine. Thank you very much. So uh, anyway, that's the final thing. I, I'm going to, um, as our ushers come forward and prepare for our offering, um, I say each week, this is, this is the one part of the service that belongs to those of us who attend here regularly. Uh, having talked about that, some of you who are visiting or watching online go, hey, it's just like every other church, all they do is talk about money. I talk about money to our church family. Uh, if you're visiting, this is not your concern. We're just glad you're here. Just don't steal from the offering or we will find you. Um, <laughs> But we're, we're just glad you're here. Um, I, I do want to say one more thing, and that's the, the many of you have heard that my, my mother is ailing, uh, and she had uh, a, an incident sometime early last week that looked like a stroke. It has all the manifestations of a stroke. It appears to be high blood pressure that has done some significant damage to the right side of her body. I appreciate your prayer. We don't know much beyond that. She's at CHI and, and in step down, and they're taking very, very good care of her. Just pray. That's all we can do. Uh, many of you know my mom struggles with dementia as well, and, and she's in and out of here, and you know Ray, and just pray for him. Pray that God gives him wisdom in her care and all that. I, I, I just say that because I know a lot of you have questions, and I don't have a lot more answers than that, but just, just keep praying. God's got this too. He's a good God, and uh, the best day of our lives is when we go home. It, 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 it really is. It really is. It's, this is not... When we get ill, and, and, and my mom may live many, many years, but it makes you think about it. When we when they come to the end of our life, it's not the end. It's not the beginning of the end. When you find out you have cancer for a child of God, it's the end of the beginning, right? It's the end of the beginning. Keep your hope in God. That guy. That's why he came. What does it say? Oh, death, where is your sting? It stings a little, but that bee gets crushed. That bee gets crushed because we have been saved because of that one. So anyway, like I said, I'm I already did preach before I preached, but uh, thank you for your prayer. Thank you for your love. I, I hear all of you. We'll keep telling you about it, and you just keep praying, and, and, and God's faithful. If, if we only trust him when it's good, we're no different than anybody else, right? We're going to trust him when it's not good because he is good. And uh, so let's pray, and let's get on with what we came here to do. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, songs. Uh, thank you for songs that remind us of your goodness and your faithfulness. Thank you for the theology in those songs. Thank you for our gathering. I am, uh, I am so blessed to stand up here every week. When we start the music, there may be 70 people in here. When I get up here to greet people, there's four to 500, and it's just, it's just so good for my heart that these people care enough about you and each other to gather here every week, and I pray that you would build on that. I pray that we would be people who are open and sincere and honest and, and want to be the change that we know the church needs to be. Lord Jesus, thank you um, for how you have provided for us in 2018 in so many ways. We thank you for the kids and the adults that were saved, the, the people that were discipled, the, the dozens and dozens of baptisms, those who are willing to stand in front of this church and say, I'm going to follow Jesus, and, and I want the world to know. And we pray for more in 2019. We pray for more souls, more commitment, 
more understanding of you from your word. Father, we pray that you would, we, we pray and we know you'll continue to provide financially for us. And I, I pray that you would move in our hearts, those of us who attend here regularly, to make that part of our worship, that we would enjoy the privilege of, of giving, of writing a check or putting cash in there, or just, just the privilege it is to participate in the work of the gospel globally and here, here in town. And so, Father, we commit this year to you and we ask you to bless us and direct us and guide us and be in charge of all areas. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Stand and worship with us, you're more than welcome. The cross, our way to freedom. The cross, our right to bear. But God, so rich. In mercy, took our place and saved us there. Lift him high, our praise to Jesus. Lift him high for all to see. Lift him high, the cross of Calvary, where mercy died to set us free. Our King, who reigns victorious, now sits upon His throne. Forever He is worshipped, glory to our God alone. Lift Him high, all praise to Jesus, lift Him high. For all to see, lift him high, the cross of Calvary, where mercy died to set us free. All the saints, oh, and all the saints adore you, heaven bows before you. Worthy is the great I am. Oh, and all the saints adore you. Heaven bows before you. Worthy is the great I am. Oh, and all the saints adore you. Heaven bows before you. Worthy is the great I am. Oh, and all the saints adore you. Heaven bows before you, worthy is the great I am. Lift him high, all praise to Jesus. Lift him high for all to see. Lift him high, the cross 
of Calvary, where mercy died to set us free. Oh, lift him high, our praise to Jesus. Lift him high for all to see. Lift him high, the cross of Calvary, where mercy died to set us free. sing about your power. Each morning I will sing with joy about your unfailing love. For you have been my refuge, a place of safety where I am in distress. O oh, my strength, to you I sing praises. For you, O oh God, are my refuge, the God who shows me unfailing love.
forever change, be lifted high, exalted forevermore. The Lord of Lords, the King of Majesty. Oh God, you reign, you never change, be lifted high, exalted forevermore. The Lord of Lords, the King of Majesty. There you are, 
exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake and it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives, even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, 
God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve, and this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise, and it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends and the snake crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus's power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth.
So we pick up the story in the middle. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, verse 3 of 1 John tells us. And nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought life light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. Verse 8, John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. They were born, not with physical birth that results from human passion or plan, but from a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and, have, uh, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John testified about him, when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said someone's coming after me, who's far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. From his abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and his faithfulness came through Jesus the Messiah. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who himself is God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Matthew chapter 1. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife, Luke 2. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary to whom he was engaged, who is now expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for a baby to be born, so she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. All right, take a breath. Take, I want you to take a breath because I know you know this story. You've just heard it 2,000 times in the last month. But I want you to pay attention to the stuff that we don't often maximize, the information, just the story. Think of this like you haven't heard of it. Uh, that night, there were shepherds standing in the fields nearby. I'm in verse 8, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them. 
Pause, take a breath. It doesn't say hovering. It's not at all like the children's pageants or it's not at all like the, the TV shows. He was, he was among them. And the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. It doesn't say that the angel showed the radiance of the Lord. It says that the radiance of the Lord showed around them. So what you have is a bunch of shepherds out in the field talking, and a guy walks in the middle of them who's an angel of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. It was around them, in them, in the midst of them. This was a supernatural moment, and they, were, they knew it because they become terrified. How do we know that? They were terrified. Verse 10. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news. Why would they be afraid of an angel bringing bad news? Because for the previous 700 years, every time a prophet or an angel came, it was not good news. I bring you good news this time, which will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. Now you know why he's born in a manger. The reason he was born in a manger is to be a sign so that they could recognize which baby in Bethlehem was the Messiah. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven. These were not little cherubs that we see in movies, little with harps, you know, getting people to love each other. These were the army armies of heaven praising God saying glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased when the angels had returned to heaven the shepherds said to each other let's go to Bethlehem we've got to go check this out let's see this thing that's happened which the Lord has told us about so they hurried to the village and they found Mary and Joseph and there was the baby lying in the manger after seeing him the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the angel's story were astonished. But Mary kept all of these things in her heart and, and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. Then it was time for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if the first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord. So you take a break there, and that tells you that this is a very religious Jewish family. Little uh, details. We're not going to spend all of our time in this part of the story today, but I want you to highlight the stuff you're familiar with and notice some of the stuff. So we know a lot about the family just from this. In fact, it goes on to say that the, the requirement of the law was either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So that gives us two pieces of information. They are very Jewish. They're obedient to Roman law and religious law of the Jewish people. So they're, that's how we know they're religious. But it also tells us by the sacrifice they make, turtle doves or pigeons. It doesn't tell us which they sacrificed, but it tells us they were poor. They were poor at this point because they could have also offered a more expensive sacrifice, but it gave instructions for the poor among them to be able to offer to the Lord these things. Verse 25, at that time there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was a righteous, so, so we're eight days in. He, they go to the temple to offer Jesus back, firstborn child. They're doing the religious law. They name him Jesus. That was the father's responsibility. He's obeying the angels and doing that. They offer their sacrifice, and while they're there, and this is all part of the brisk, the circumcision experience, at that time there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was a righteous and devout man who was eagerly awaiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. That tells you what Simeon was waiting for. 
He's about to become a prophet, but his expectations were a rescuer of Israel. That's going to come in play in a few moments. The Holy Spirit was upon him and, he, and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's anointed one. That's just another translation of Messiah, anointed one. Jesus' last name was not Christ. Christ means Messiah. Uh, Messiah could also be translated as the anointed one. Why is that important? Because Daniel, God tells Daniel the anointed one will come in this many years. Uh, actually, if you want to know Jesus' identity, um, then it would have been Jesus of Nazareth. That is the name by which he went. So when they were in Christ's time, in the Messiah's time, in his life, it wouldn't have been Jesus the Christ. It would have been Jesus of Nazareth, Joseph's son. That's how they identified back then. Just side information. The Spirit was upon him, verse 26, and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah, talking about Simeon. That day the, Lord, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as required by the law, Simeon was there. And he took the child in his arms and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace. As you have promised, I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. Now he's prophesying. Because before he was waiting for God to send the Messiah to rescue Israel. Now he's salvation for all people. He is the light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what had been said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been see, uh, sent as a sign from God, but, but many will oppose him. As a result, and he's saying this to Mary, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. Wow. Was that true? Verse 36, Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple, and she was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. You think your life has been difficult? Take a breath. She's seven years into a marriage who's, as a woman whose life is completely wrapped up in giving children to the man that she's married to, and she ends up a widow the rest of her life. Just because you're a worshiper doesn't mean your life is going to be easy. Verse 37, then she, then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple but stayed there day and night worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. Now you know what the people are thinking. When Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law of the Lord, they returned home to Nazareth in Galilee. There the child grew up healthy and strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and God's favor was upon him. Um, uh, and that is how God, the Word, the Anointed One, Emmanuel, the Messiah, or Jesus as you know him, who existed before the beginning, it tells us in Scripture, took on human flesh. Actually, I want to say it differently, became human. He became human and he dwelt among us. You know the story. You've heard it every year from the moment you were conceived, being in the Bible Belt. And if you shop at Target, you hear the songs on the, on, over the loudspeaker. You know the story. You've heard Charlie Brown tell it. You've seen it played out in different things. We even showed the Star movie, the animal's version of the story, which is not biblical. But you've heard the story, and in some ways, uh, it's a little boring because we've heard it so many times. You're very familiar with the story, but that actually isn't the end of the story. In fact, that part of it, that part of Luke actually misses a few years. For some things are missing from that part of the story that I want to spend time in today. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, it tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. 
About that time, some wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his stars at rose and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Just to give you some idea of what we're talking about here, Jerusalem is five miles uh, north of Bethlehem. So Bethlehem and five miles when you're walking or going by camel is a long way. But it's still by many, by many, um, by many attributes, it is, a, it is a suburb of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a, lo- a large city with a Roman, where the Roman governmental headquarters was, where the temple is located. So you have the central hub of, of Judaism, of Jewish worship, of nationalism, and you have the central hub of Roman government. Those aren't there by accident. Basically, to rule the world back in that time, you would, you would take over countries, you would have a stronger army, and nobody would rise up against you, and basically what you would do is you would kidnap the strongest, the best, the religious of each culture and each uh, group that you would take, and, and you would subjugate them. You would, you would give, uh, for instance, Jewish people, the high priest, High amounts of authority, you would support his act if he will support yours. Because the job of the person, the governor of the area, was to keep the peace. And if he couldn't keep the peace, he was only given a a small amount of time by the Roman government to keep that peace, and he would be killed, removed, and somebody else would be put in his place. That's the mojo of the world at the time. And so you have in Jerusalem this large international city where lots of things are happening, and you have King Herod, who is the wrongful king of the Jews. And I say that because I want you to understand, we just sort of accept certain things, but as you know, the Jews wanted their own king. They're a very proud people, even to this day, and they long, if they don't long to rule the world, they long to be respected as a ruling nation in the world, and they long to be a kinged nation. And they don't have a king at this time, so Herod acts as their king. But he has a problem. He's not the king of the Jews. He knows it. And so part of his fear, and he was, uh, history tells us that Herod was an incredibly uh, um, scared man. It tells us that he lived in fear nonstop, even to the point where he killed members of his own family to keep them from overthrowing him. He lived in constant fear that he was going to be overruled. So when he hears that the Israelites have a king that was born, and when he when he realizes that these men, these Gentile men, travel thousands of miles in order to worship him, that unsettles him. And it doesn't just unsettle him. It tells us that it unsettles all of the people from in Jerusalem. You see, peace is only kept as long as people will submit. And if they rise up, if Jerusalem is about to be restored by this strong kingly figure, that's going to be a problem for the Roman government. That's going to be a problem for the peace. Any thought of an anointed one or spiritual or national leader, uh, leader was a problem for Herod and the, and the uh, Jerusalem city. Not just the Gentiles, but the Jews as well who liked things at status quo. Any thought, though, and I want to make this clear, from what we know from Scripture and history, any thought of the Messiah Jesus the Christ, who we know him to be. But any thought of the Messiah being a spiritual leader was a minor part of the discussion. In fact, they would speak of the blessing that this Messiah would bring to the whole world, but the Jews assumed that the world would be blessed by their leadership. 
They didn't think that there was a spiritual need. They thought that the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Covenant, as they would adhere to it more and more, or basically the, the, the average Jewish person, if they would simply offer sacrifices as the priests and the rabbis required, they felt like spiritually they were in fine shape. After all, they are God's chosen people. So any thought that was of this Messiah coming and redeeming them spiritually wasn't their first thought or even an important thought. What they thought their biggest need was was what the need was when they were enslaved in Egypt. You see, their dream, their prayer, their desire for this Redeemer was that he would be the next Moses, that he would actually help them overthrow the Romans just like they had overthrown the Egyptians and rule the world or at least rule their own lives. That was their desire. It was not a spiritual one. What's interesting here is that it appears in these first three verses that these three wise guys from the East, Gentiles to the best of our knowledge, had more spiritual view on Hebrew Old Testament prophecy than their Jewish counterparts, for they invested time and money. And we're talking about, so again, it doesn't give us any more detail than we have right here, but outside of Scripture, you learn a lot of stuff. There's a lot of traditional teaching. Um, it is interesting that these men traveled thousands of miles, and they came to worship him. They saw this child, not just at one who should be respected as a future national leader, but one who deserved to be worshiped. Two reasons we know that this men, these men did not arrive on the night of his birth. I know that that's a fun topic now, and we, we laugh about that, but this is the passage which gives us two reasons. Number one, the Greek word that the Magi used for seeking Christ is not an infant, but, an, uh, but a child up to two years of age. Jesus is probably standing, walking, or at least crawling by the time they show up. So all that stuff that we think in our brain that it looked like, they don't bow at the manger. They bow to a two-year-old kid who's doing what two-year-old kids do, and he's clueless, and they're clueless. This is an amazing story for that reason. Second of all, later in the chapter, they're gonna refer to Mary and Joseph and Jesus living in a house. So they have moved out of the stable. Jesus is not sleeping as a, as a young boy in a manger. They have moved into a house. Life has gone on. It is reasonable to believe that Joseph has gotten work. He's a carpenter. I'm gonna tell you later that, that their desire is to go back to Galilee, which this is this region. So it is reasonable to believe that before they have to take off to save Jesus' life, which is what they do, that's interesting, but before they have to steal Jesus away to Egypt to save his life, They've been there a while, and what happens is once uh, Herod is dead and they can return, they start to head back to Galilee. They start to head back to this region. It is reasonable to believe that Joseph is going to go back and restart his trade, and yet God doesn't allow that. Very important stuff. So verse 3, Ostro is interesting also because it tells us that not only was Herod disturbed, but the people of Jerusalem were disturbed, and I want you to think on that. When Jesus comes into the world, even as an infant, everybody is immediately impacted. That has not changed. The fact that Jesus, the Messiah, was born and lived among us, you can't deny that, you can't ignore it. In fact, the religions of the world accept the fact that Jesus lived. A few freaks do not, but everybody else does. Through historical study, extra-biblical study, it has been proven, and, and Josh McDowell does a really good job with this, whose goal in life was to disprove the existence of Jesus, and it's also pointed out in, uh, I'm sorry, that book is Evidence That Demands a Verdict, but also in, in more recent books, the, the Case for Christ, 
it points out from extra biblical material, not just scriptural material, but there is more evidence that Jesus, the Messiah, actually lived than there is that Abraham Lincoln ever lived. The fact is, Jesus, whatever you believe about him, did in fact live. And that has impacted every man, woman, and child since they ever li- since his birth. And it is interesting that for obvious reasons why this disturbed Herod. Herod's just trying to maintain his authority. But it also disturbed the people of Jerusalem. And the fact is, the people of Jerusalem are, are, are upset because if, in fact, a Jewish king comes to place, that puts all of their authority at, 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 uh, at risk as well, including the Jewish religious leaders. They don't want a king. Because if all of a sudden Moses comes back, it minimizes the authority of the Jewish religious leaders. It minimizes the authority of the Gentile leaders. It minimizes everybody's authority. It is an amazing thing that still, even back then, people, when they found that Jesus was born, it either makes peace in their life or it disturbs them. And that has not changed. That just hasn't changed. These wealthy, respected Gentiles, from thousands of miles away, believed in the prophecy so much that they invest time, money, and energy, and they even bring incredibly expensive gifts to honor a boy somewhere between two years of age or younger, and that is not something that a paranoid, schizophrenic king or city can ignore. Verse 3 also, interestingly enough, tells us that, um, that as the people were upset, they act upon it. Now, now this, is, this is interesting because I, I want you to realize why this matters. I, I, I'm not boring you yet. Stick with me because this is important. I want you to understand that even to this day, the lie of the evil one goes against the fact that Jesus' birth is, is disturbing. He wants us to rewrite the story, and some in the church are even doing it, that peace on earth is all that the angel said. When in reality, in Luke 2.14, this is a very significant statement. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Peace on earth is not to everyone. Jesus actually teaches, and we'll get into this later, that I, he says to himself, I didn't come to bring peace. He actually says that. I came to bring a sword. I'm going to divide families. You see, While the world and some within the church want to say that Jesus brought peace and calm to everyone, the truth is, peace that he came to give is only had by those who worship and put their trust in him. By the way, in the story of his birth, that's three guys. I know know what you're thinking right now. How do you know there were only three? Um, Tradition tells us there were only three. I don't buy it. I, I, I don't not buy it, but that's why we have three. It's maybe based on historical uh, evidence that there are three gifts. It tells us here that there are three gifts, so they pick three. There could have been 300. There could have been 3,000. There could have been uh, three little boys. All we know is that these, these wise men bring three gifts. They're Gentiles, and they come clearly to worship. And I'm going to tell you why in a second. They come to worship. It's also clear in this text that Jesus Christ, at the moment of his birth, is a threat to average person. Unless you are a worshiper of God, Jesus is a problem for you. And that hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. It wasn't a silent night. It wasn't a silent season. The Jews are unsettled because they're overruled by Romans. The Romans are scared because the Jews could uprise at any moment. This is a tense time in the world. And the thing is that God sent Jesus to do something supernatural, to save people from their sins. The New Testament teaches that those who are not God's kids, those who have not bowed the knee to accept Jesus the Messiah as as their Lord and Savior, and I want to put both, 
because we're moving away from that. You're going to hear me say that more and more. Jesus isn't just Savior. He's Lord. Romans 10 says, if you confess Jesus as Lord, unless you accept him as Jesus and Lord, Savior and Lord, you're his enemy. Romans says that. Colossians says that. Preachers don't say that. I want you to know that not everybody born, not every human is a child of God. That's a modern lie. Everybody born is the creation of God. And in that is precious. But only those who accept his offer to adopt them by having the price paid for their sin are the children of God. That's what makes you his child. Not understanding that he lived. The demons themselves, James tells us, understand that he died and rose again. That doesn't make the demons saved. What makes you saved is accepting his offer. That he's Lord and that he's the only one that can save you. Everything else just makes you smart. It doesn't make you saved. And this is missing in a lot of conversations in the church today. I want to be clear. Jesus Christ did not come to make you psychologically whole. He did not come to make you physiologically whole. He came to make you spiritually whole. And to do that, you have to believe he's Lord, the one who has authority over all things, and those things in particular, and he's the Savior. The Greek word for disturbed, the, the disturbing that Herod felt and the Jerusalem people felt, is distressed. They were distressed. Does the reality of Jesus disturb you or comfort you? Does it distress you? Well, not the Jesus you're preaching. The Jesus I'm preaching is irrelevant. The Jesus presented in Scripture is very relevant. If some of you are tuning in or are here just to find out what I say or what we think of Jesus or because you've never studied his life, the reality is that most people know Jesus as the baby. Most people know Jesus as the resurrected one, but they have no idea who he is in the middle. And I'm here to tell you, if you haven't spent much time reading that, it's unsettling. It's not just unsettling for us today or for Herod and the Jerusalem people. It was unsettling for the people that listened to him preach. Jesus was constantly, in fact, I want to say that there's never been a shepherd in the history of shepherding that divided his flock more than Jesus. Jesus' church wasn't growing, it was shrinking. They were constantly leading him. They were constantly debating over the hard things that he taught. And for those of you who aren't clear on this point, wait until you find out why Jesus actually taught in parables. Most of us think, because we've been taught by storytellers, that the, that the reason we tell stories is because Jesus was the grand storyteller of them all. That he spoke in parables so that the most simple among us can understand. When Scripture actually says that the reason he spoke in parables is so people wouldn't understand. You see, what Jesus wanted is not just people who are mamby-pamby going, I kind of like this baby in a manger, but people who are going, I want to know him. I want to worship him. People who are willing to travel thousands of miles on the back of a camel at great personal expense to bow the knee. That's what God is seeking. He's not seeking to fill heaven with little people who just want to go to heaven. He's seeking people who will pick up their cross and follow him. Matthew 2, 3. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said. For this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, or 
or not, are not the least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with these wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Jerusalem and see, search carefully for the child. And when you find him, you come back and tell me. Pay attention to this next line. Why does he want them to tell him? So I can go worship him as well. That's a funny part of the story when we're children, but I want you to understand that that tells us what he knew of the wise men. This is really significant. We don't know anything about the wise men except they come from the east and they come to worship. It tells us on several occasions. And this validates that these weren't people just coming to worship a future nationalistic leader. Because if that were the case, Herod would have simply paid them. He would have said, I want to go and show my respects for Jewish leadership, but he doesn't. He actually uses the fact that they, he knows that they are sensitive to joining them in worship. Worship, by the way, the Greek word for worship here in the New Testament is the word to actually prostrate yourself on the ground as a religious submission. These guys weren't coming just to revere another king. They were coming because they knew that this Messiah was here for spiritual reason. And it, that, that idea is endorsed by the fact that in his manipulative speech, Herod uses that same thing. I want to worship him too. Man, if this is God's anointed one, you got to tell me where he's at. And in that, they're convinced of him. Do you, do you understand the argument? I want you to realize that there's a lot of conflict going on here. This was not a peaceful time. I argue it was not a silent night or a silent season. This is a season of great unsettledness, not just in the hearts of Jews who are, who are enslaved to Romans, but Romans as well. The conversation with these guides leads Herod to say that he wants to join them in worship. That's the hook he's going to use to get these men to return to him at, with the location of the one that he needs to kill to stay in power. He doesn't offer money. He doesn't offer political power. He says he wants to join them and become a worshiper with them. And these guys, that resonated with these guys. These three gift-giving fellas were worshipers of the Most High God. They knew who he was. And they came to bow. When it appears that no one else did. That's pretty cool. In case you're not clear, God is not the God of the Jews. He's the God of all of us. And we have some Gentiles here showing up on the scene and doing the right thing. Verse 9, after this interview with the wise men, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them, and it, stu uh, it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. And they entered the house. There it is. Not the barn, not the stable, but the house. And they saw the child, not an infant, they saw the child, there he is. What do you think they thought when they walked in? There's a one-and-a-half-year-old boy thrown up on the floor because he has the flu. What do you think they thought? There's the child with his mother, his mother Mary. And they prostrated themselves and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest. And that little one-and-a-half-year-old boy, they hand him a, a big bar of gold and a bottle of myrrh, and an encasement of frankincense. And he kicked it like a soccer ball, because he was only one and a half. Joseph's eyes lit up because he was now rich. Mary went, we get dinner. Jesus goes, that stinks. These guys had listened to the voice of God. Do we? 
I mean, I know we know the story, and I know we love the story, and I know we know the prophecies, and I know we know, but I, I want you to realize that the Old Testament is still relevant. It matters. These stories matter because they're people just like us. And God is faithful to them just like he is us, and he's faithful to us just like he was them. These stories matter because they give you courage and strength when life seems to be careening out of control because life was careening out of control here. For a woman named Anna who, who was only married seven years and, and, and now she's in her 80s and, and she's lived most of her life as a widow fasting and praying every day of her life after losing her husband. Or these three wise guys who get on a camel and they travel across the globe for the sole purpose of seeing the Messiah. Or a guy named Simeon who's promised by God that he won't die until he sees the Lord's anointed one who will restore Jerusalem. They opened their treasure chest and they gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. Why? For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. These guys listened to the voice of God. So not only are they worshipers, but they're obedient servants of God. These most likely Gentile guys worshipped the God of the Hebrews and listened to him when he warned them. In last week's introduction to the series by Zach, he made several foundational facts on who Jesus is. And by the way, have we sung that song that you sang? That there he is. Have we sung that before? Dude, that's your best song. I mean, I had tears in my eyes, and I don't tear up very often. I should cry more. I know. It moves flocks. <laughs> Listen. There he is. I love it. And, and Chad took us through the story of Jesus. There he is. But do you realize that these wise men traveled thousands of miles and maybe over a year and they get there and they go, there he is, as he kicks them in the shin. I know, Jesus didn't kick people in the shin because he was the son of God. He preached at them, even at one and a half. Good afternoon, gentlemen from the east. I have been awaiting your revival, or your arrival, whatever. <laughs> I mean, he's just, this is, this is a boy. Zach made several points as to who the Lord is. There he is. I love that. And the first thing Zach said is he is Lord. And I know every one of you agree with that here this morning. But I, I want to go farther and help you understand that in our modern thinking, I want you to realize that Jesus, yes, is Lord of your life. And yes, he's Lord of our church. And yes, he is Lord of of the United States, but I want you to understand, he's Lord of all, even if you don't want him to be. He is Lord of all things. That is a fact that is not negotiable. It doesn't depend on what's going on in the world. You don't have to vote him president for him to be king of kings. I hate that sign every Easter, vote Jesus president. No, don't vote him president. Don't mess him up in the political system. Let him be the king of kings. And he is the king of kings. And what you see in this story, and you're going to see throughout, is God manipulating the pieces on the chessboard to make his prophecies and promises come about. God is not subjugated to our acceptance. Because in this story, and I'm including Mary and Joseph, and some of you might want to push back on this a little bit, and I respect you, but the fact is that I don't think Mary and Joseph have a clue as to who this child is they just birthed. I mean, I think they know that he's the son of God and that he is the... 
He is the Savior of Israel, like everybody else thought. And I know that they know that he is the Messiah, but I don't think they had any clue that he would come and die on the cross and three days later rise again. I don't think they have any clue what that means or the ramifications of that. I think they were just a dad and a mom living in a house who keeps getting these freak-out visitors who show up with really expensive gifts. I think that they're standing there and a knock comes at the door and it's Shalom. We're from the east and these guys probably had a southern accent. What's up? That's inner city. I didn't do southern right there. I'll get it, I'll get it right. But they show up on the scene and it tells us that whether it's the angels or whether it's the shepherds or whether it's, it's, it's these guys, we don't, again, I know how many there are. I keep saying three. There are three gifts. We don't know. But whoever these people are, it tells us every time that Mary takes these things on and, and ponders on them often. I bet she did because she has to go, I'm in trouble. What is this? When do I spank this child? Do you spank God? What happens if the one that can cast your soul into Sheol is the one who smarts off to you? Can you sp- I mean, it's just, it's just beyond imagination. Joseph had to think to himself, do I make him a carpenter or what, what exactly? I got, I got news for you. We really don't have any evidence that Jesus was a carpenter except traditionally he would have been raised in his father's uh, training. You all thought we were modeling our church after Jesus. We're modeling it after Joseph. That was funny. Laugh. The, the, fact, the fact is, this, this baby, this infant, is Lord, but he's also a man. He's human. And I don't mean a man. I mean, he's human. He actually was in Mary's womb. That wasn't a watermelon or fake water or just a thing. Well, they didn't have ultrasound. How do we know that God, what would that look like? Would it glow? He traveled down that beautiful God-created chute and he became an infant and somebody had to cut his umbilical cord and a week later they found it looking like the edge of a banana peel in in, in wherever he was sleeping. And he was God all that time. He wasn't just in the form of man, he was man. And all of that reality is true even to a year and a half when these guys show up to worship him and they're bowing and Jesus is standing in the corner going... (laughs) I'm bored. That's reality. He was Lord, is Lord, always will be Lord, whether you see him as Lord or not. That's something I want to start screaming. While the world is arguing, church, let's forget the world, while the church is arguing whether sin is still sin, God isn't worried about it at all. He's not fretting over gay marriage in America. He's not fretting over anything. He's not fretting over the news you got about work or the fact that the economy could go downhill or that Donald Trump is a, is a loudmouth president or Twitter president and he doesn't care that Pelosi, he doesn't worry, he's not worried. Somebody's gonna write me that he cares. What he cares about is souls, not nations. There's only one nation that was anointed to be used by God and it is not the United States of America. It is the nation of Israel. It is the Hebrew nation and he will fulfill his covenant to them. That's going to happen. Why? How can you say that? Because he's Lord. I grew up under Tim LaHaye where he talked about the return of the Lord more than anything else. And I remember sitting and, and being afraid. And you know, it was almost, uh, we, I was just talking with somebody the other day about this. It was almost like, why did we talk about it so much? It was almost like we had to stop it. Don't vote for that person. He acts like the beast. Or that could be the mark of the beast. Or that person, he represents the Antichrist. Oh, now that Obama, I remember hearing this after Obama got elected. Oh, here it comes. He's ushering in the end of time. Well, take a breath. It's going to come at right time. It's going to happen. Because Jesus is Lord. Yeah, but he's only Lord of the good stuff. No, he's Lord of the bad stuff too. 
in, ca in case you're not clear on that, uh, yeah, well, let's look at the bad stuff he was in charge of. After the wise men, verse 13 in Matthew chapter 2, after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. Well, that wasn't very nice. Why didn't he wait till the morning? I mean, I, I really, 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 really want you to put yourself in this scene. So these three wise guys show up. They offer him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When they leave, Mary and Joseph do a little money dance. They high-five each other. We're rich, we're rich, we're rich. I can take the day off. Joseph plans to take the next month off and spend some of the gold that he got. He's going to go to the local funeral home, and he's going to take some of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the incense for dead bodies that you've been hearing about your whole life, the myrrh, and he's going to take it there, and he's going to sell it because it's very expensive. And they're going, to, they're going to take a month off. They're probably going to travel the world. They're going to do all that stuff. And they go to bed, and they're hugging. Now we can add more to our family because we can afford them. And they're hugging and holding each other in bed, and then all of a sudden, Mary starts snoring. <laughs> and Jesus is sleeping and he rolls over and Joseph falls asleep and all of a sudden it's like, hey, wake up, you gotta get your family out of here. Herod's coming to kill your son. Which, by the way, is the second thing I wanna talk to you about. God is in constant process of protecting this baby that is also God. So when you start doubting that he was man, I wanna make it clear that this is not an act in three play, or this is not a play in three acts. Why does he wake up Joseph in the middle of the night? Because this infant can be killed. This is not the only time we hear this. It's actually Jesus starts his preaching in the synagogues, and it tells us that he started preaching outside on the outskirts of town because they either wanted to make him king or others wanted to kill him. In fact, his brothers mock him and tell him to go in on the, uh, um, during the Passover season into town and do some of his miracles. They're mocking him, and they're saying, everybody will follow you if you go into town, and Jesus says, no, they want to kill me. It's not time. You see, there's a timeline that's seen throughout this if you read it within context. There's stuff going on. God's got a plan. Why? Because he's Lord. At the same time, he's a human infant that can be run through by a Roman sword. And so God is, God is keeping his plan in action by moving the pieces around and using people. And poor Joseph, he's got the first good day he's had in about three years. His family looks intact. Nobody, yeah, nobody's questioning the legitimacy of that infant child that's his. In fact, everybody seems to be hailing it. And he goes to bed with enough money to, to take care of his family for the first time. And he's woken up a few hours later by an angel going, you've got to get out of here. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up. Flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. And in case you're not sure what the Greek word for flee is, in English it means run fast. You knew that. The angel said, stay there. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, any questions on what that means? That night, the first good night he's had in three years. That night, Joseph leaves for Egypt with the child and Mary his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Wow, he is in charge. He's Lord before it happens. He's Lord why it happens, and he'll be Lord after it happens. He's in complete control, thousands of years ahead of this. He's already saying what's going to happen. You saw in the video earlier that the whole purpose of all this is because the serpent is going is to bite and bruise his heel, but he is going to crush his head. And this is what that is pointing to. The reason that Joseph ends up in a pit on his way to Egypt is not because his brothers were evil, but because God wanted to incubate a nation with which a, the Messiah would be born, and it would have to go from a group of about 65 people to about 2 million people in less than 500 years. So he puts them in slavery in Egypt where they multiply like rabbits. 
And every time the Egyptians try to put him down, God raises him up until eventually he takes care of business. Why? Not because God had favor on the Jews, but because God was going to use the Jews as he had promised Abraham to bless the world. You and I would not be saved if Joseph did not go to Egypt. God is good, my friends, even in the most tragic moments. As Joseph wakes up in the middle of the night and his hair is bad and there's no time for a shower and he gets his wife on a donkey or whatever they traveled in and they are scurrying out of town and you know exactly what they were feeling because you've all watched NCIS. They're looking over their shoulders and I don't care how much trust he had in the Lord, he's not sure that he and and Mary survived. He's just a dude doing his job to protect his wife and kid because the angel told him to. And as they are leaving town, Joseph is scared to death. And guess what he's, he's looking forward to when he gets to Egypt? Ishmaelites. Well, that's going to work out really well for a Jew now, isn't it? This is a mess, and this is what it looks like to be a man or woman used by God. You are being lied to on a regular basis that God wants your best for you. He wants his best for you, and he's got a plan, a plan that's based on on loving us and adopting us, but the plan in the meantime is going to be scary and painful. Ask Joseph and Mary. Don't believe the lie. You are not the I am, no matter who writes that book. It's Jesus that is the I am. And Satan is playing the hedges of truth and trying to get you to believe that the center of God's universe is you. And I want to be clear, the center of God's universe is God. You are a benefactor of his love for you. He loves you, and it will, it, but it may hurt for a while. But he loves you, and he looks forward to you coming home. But in the meantime... That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the uh, the Lord had spoken to the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt, verse 16. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem. That stinks. And it's part of the story. You know what? We're going to have Chad write a new song. We're going to call it Terror of of Bethlehem, and that will be our theme next Christmas. And next time you buy your child Noah's Ark or you put things on the wall, just remember of the millions or hundreds of thousands of people who were drowned outside of the ark. We like the happy side of the story, but you have to understand that when we introduced sin in the garden, death ensued. Jesus' entrance on scene did not bring a silent night or a peaceful night. What it brought was peace to those upon whom his favor rests. And if you are not sure you are one of those and you're wondering how to be, just call on the name of the Lord and you will be his child. That's what's crazy about this story. You don't have to genuflect. You don't have to give, although we appreciate that. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to serve in children's ministry, although Alicia would appreciate that. That's not what you have to do. To be saved, all you have to do is call on the name of the Lord. If you confess that he is Lord and you believe in his heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That baby is the Savior. No, he's just a year and a half old baby. You know what those wise men knew? That he wasn't a year and a half old baby. He was billions of years old in human form, actually God himself, the Lord of all, and they should bow. How about us? Well, I don't like what he says. That's none of your business. You know, I, 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 I struggle too, okay? I struggle. Now that we're all in the same boat, I don't like God's plan. I wish he would just make life smooth here to heaven, but that's not how this works. Why? Because there's work for us to do in the mess. But I want you to know that whether or not you like what he's doing in your life or in your spouse's wife or in your children's life, he's not in heaven going, I sure hope they like me. He's going, I got a plan, trust me. By the way, that's why we gather because you're gonna have a bad day or week or month and and you need me to remind you that God is good. 
and I'm going to have a bad day, week, or month, and I'm going to need you to remind me that God is good. I need that. But that's not what the church does anymore. We get together and we preach at each other these little truths that we all agree on and we talk politics and we talk everything but Jesus. Oh, he's part of the discussion, but only after the fact. If we don't vote, God's still in control. If it doesn't go our way, what if God's in control even when we die of cancer? What if that is the best day of our eternal life? What if God has a plan for Mary and Joseph that involves Egypt? I don't want to go to Egypt. I didn't ask. It's an incredible story. Herod was furious, and they kill all the boys two years and younger based upon the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Verse 17, Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. In case you're not keeping count, that's 800 years before the birth. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. 800 years before this happens, it's prophesied that it's going to happen. Peace on earth. Did it bring peace to Herod or the mothers of Jerusalem? How about Joseph and Mary, faithful servants of the Most High God? They're awakened in the middle of the night to run for their lives to a foreign country to protect their godson that they didn't even conceive together. When God takes over Mary and Joseph's life for his own plan and his work in the world, their having a say over their own lives is over. Verse 19, when Herod died... An angel of the Lord appeared to them in, in a dream to uh, appeared to, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel, because those who are trying to kill uh, the children, uh, the child, are dead. Oh, that's a ne- second best day of his life. I get to go back, honey, honey, honey. Pack the kids. We're going. I, I said kids. That's not a theological. I, it's probably maybe just Jesus, but I'm, I'm making this up as I go along. So it's time to go back. We're going to our people. And if you aren't sure how much the Jews like being among Jews, you need to go back and read the Old Testament. It's all over that. They love their own people. So Joseph gets up and he returns to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. Okay, there's only one son. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judah was Herod's son, Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. Oh, come on, God. Please, I want to go to Bethlehem. Go to Galilee. Why? None of your business. I'm Lord. I know what you're thinking. Those of you who are biblically minded are going, he had to go back there to fulfill prophecy. What you don't know is if the prophecy was written so that you knew that he was the Messiah as prophesied, But we don't know why God moves him back to Nazareth. We don't have any idea. Maybe it was to keep him safe. Maybe it was to keep him quiet. Maybe because if he went to the temple every day living in Jerusalem and argued with the priest, they'd start worshiping him, and that wasn't God's plan, or killed the kid. We don't know. But we do know that God meets them in the middle of the night, or or the Lord instructs an angel to tell them. So for that reason, he leaves for the region of Galilee instead of where he wanted to go. That's the inference. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth which fulfilled the prophets that said he will be called a Nazarene. Once again, you see the lordship over all of this and that God is directing the steps of the Messiah's parents. And once again, you see humanity, vulnerability of Jesus and that his parents obviously want to return to the Jerusalem region. But since Herod's son is now there, God changes their plans and sends them to Nazareth where Old Testament prophecy will actually be fulfilled. He is both Lord and fully human at the exact same time. So the word 
that is God, became human and made his home among us. As God, this one we worship did not make himself the exception to the rules of humanity and the vulnerability and the weakness of the flesh. He lived within it, completely trusting himself to his father's plan. But as a human infant, and get this, I, I, I want this to seek in. As a human infant, he humbles himself and trusts his parents and the Magi's willingness to obey God rather than their own desires. Think about that. If Mary or Joseph decide not to obey the angel of the Lord, Jesus is toast. If the Magi decide to go back to Herod and make money, Jesus is toast. It is their obedience that allows the Lord's will to be done. And all of this happens because of Galatians chapter 4. I didn't realize what time it is. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm way long. That's surprising, but it's the, it's the plan of God. When the right time came, God sent him son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Um, he was willing to completely un upend the life of Mary and Joseph and three magi and all the mothers of Bethlehem and all the people of Jerusalem and a crazy guy named Herod simply so you and I could be born again. Sometimes it feels like we're living in an unimportant time just trying to live good, moral, wholesome lives while awaiting either our home going or the return of the Lord. Satan has convinced us that we are living in an in-between time that is not really relevant spiritually in history. We know that reaching one person for Christ matters, but in the big scheme of things, we don't see ourselves in the tradition of Paul or Jesus or Mary or Joseph or Daniel, and I'm here to tell you that they didn't either. They did not. They did not see the bigness of their calling. They did not see the bigness of their time, but they did see the bigness of the God who asked them to obey. And so we end this morning by asking you, which one of the characters in this story are you? Are you the obedient magi who will worship Jesus at great cost to yourself? Are you willing to give of your wealth for the kingdom? Are you willing to expend large amounts of time serving others for the kingdom? Are you Joseph, who doesn't seem to complain every time God, gives, God wakes him up and tells him to leave a community? He just does it. Or are you the people of Jerusalem? Instead of finding out if he really is the Messiah, you're just disturbed by it. Let me be clear, and I, I know this bothers some of you, and, and we can talk about it on Wednesday night again, and we will, and we'll continue having a conversation, but it doesn't change the fact that if Jesus is, in fact, Lord, his plan will be accomplished in your life if you're his child, whether you want it to be or not. You can fight, you can run, you can wrestle, you can complain. You can try to change theology, but it will not change truth. There is no such thing as your truth and my truth. There's only truth. You may wish there was your truth and my truth. You may want to act out in your own worldview, and you may wish, you may wish to, to prove that, that, that you're a good person and, and that you don't really aren't as evil as everybody else, and you can, you can die believing that, but I'm here to tell you that only those who live like the Magi and die like the Magi are the children of God. That's harsh. That is phobia of many sorts. Jesus Christ did not come to make social justice the law of the land, nor did he come to build up the Republican Party. He came to be the Lord of all, whether you are Democrat or Republican. 
where have we placed our hope? Because he may wake you up in the middle of the night tonight and say, stay faithful, it's going to get really wild, wild out there. Stay faithful. And I know that like my life, your life is careening out of control. That's nah, not. It's right on target. Because your Savior, your dad, is Lord of all. Even that thing you wish was different. And if you lose hope, look at Mary and Joseph and these three gift-giving people. They're your example. Don't be Jerusalem. Lord Jesus, thank you for the truth of your word. Make us obedient, faithful servants. I thank you for these magi, and we don't know how many there were, but we thank you for them and their obedience, their, wanting to, their desire to worship you. Thank you for that. Thank you for Mary and Joseph, whose lives are upended for your use and for our salvation. And Lord Jesus, you have called us by the same passion and desire and lordship to serve you even in the midst of chaos. So may we be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sorry I went late. Bible study will start in a minute and a half.